Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me pray as we continue our series on First Peter. Father God, we come before you and we ask, Lord God, that you would be present with us now during this portion of our worship service and that you would let your truth speak, that you would let your truth comfort, and you would let your truth confront. And I pray, Father, that in the end, we would learn to love you, Lord Jesus, all the more, and that we would look forward to the day when our joy will be inexpressible and full of glory, and that we would get more and more foretastes of that now, and that would define us as a people of God. So we come before you, we ask for your blessing, and we ask for your power to be made manifest now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So the world is a dangerous place for believers. It's crawling with enemies. We battle against the passions of the flesh that are waging war against our souls We live among unbelievers who are walking in sin, and sometimes they love to heap scorn on us who are attempting to live holy lives. Perhaps some of you might be married to unbelieving spouses who refuse to obey the gospel, and perhaps, again, some of you might be working for employers or with employees who aren't very open to the whole Christianity thing, and they're in direct opposition to you because of your belief in Christ, making your work environment difficult. The devil is our adversary. 
And he is prowling around like a roaring lion, trying to devour your faith and rip you from limb to limb so that you will not trust and see the glory of Christ. And if all that weren't enough, we have other believers to contend with from time to time who through immaturity or rebellion of their own cause us great heartache. So how in such a world can a follower of Jesus make it to the end? And I think Peter writes this letter to provide some answers and hope. So last week we heard about how these believers wound up scattered in these five regions that he's addressing them to in the provinces and um, that was connected to Roman colonization. So as the believers were faithfully following Jesus in Rome, they perhaps were expelled and scattered through these regions and now they find themselves in a situation where they're equally exiled and equally unwelcome, perhaps even more so, because they are in a Roman colonized area and their allegiance would have been to Rome. The fact that Peter does not address the church or any particular church in these areas means he's addressing just individual believers, perhaps alluding to the fact that these Christians are becoming increasingly more and more isolated and therefore Christianity is particularly vulnerable to the very anti-Christian influence around it that are pressuring them to renounce their faith in Jesus. So this is the situation that Peter writes into, and this is the backdrop that Peter writes to these believers so that they can know the true grace of God and stand firm in it. And that's the point of the letter that Peter writes. So this brings us back to the issue of hope, and I really want to focus on hope and faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. Peter writes to his believers to provide answers to their situation and to give them hope. And by extension, I pray this hope makes its way to your hearts this morning as well and challenges and encourages your faith as well. So the rest of the time this morning, I want to focus on the nature of biblical hope and how it comforts believers, and how it confronts believers. And then I also want to spend some time in the middle talking about how our faith is connected to hope. All right, so those are a couple of things I want to accomplish this morning. Let's start with biblical hope and how it comforts believers. All right, first, hope begins in worship. Notice that Peter begins this section in verse 3 with his eyes fixed on God for his work. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is worshiping right off the bat. He's exulting in God. He's worshiping. Now, I don't want this to be a practical how-to sermon, because we get enough of that in our day and age. 
and how to deal with your problems. This isn't a how-to sermon on how to deal with your problems. But Christians do need to be reminded of the place and the power of praise in their lives. Right? Peter begins with his chin up and his eyes fixed on the power and the wisdom of God who has done the improbable in forgiving you of your sins and raising Jesus from the dead. He's worshiping. So Peter doesn't worship God as a matter of pragmatics. what, What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. He isn't following a five-step plan here, right, for how to overcome difficulties in your life. Step one, worship God and don't be so fixated on your problems. That is true. You should start there. If you've got problems, try focusing on God and his awesome glory. But that's not what Peter is doing here. There's something different going on here, I think. There's something deeper going on. I think that Peter is an apostle who is filled with the Spirit of God and he he sees worship as a matter of the identity of a Christian. You are a Christian and therefore you are a worshiper of the living God. This defines who you are, right? If you are a believer in Christ, God is your Father, Jesus is your Savior, who has risen from the dead and he conquered the grave. You are forgiven of your sins, and you are born into a living hope. How do you respond to that but to worship? That's the only right response, all right? You can't miss that. It's interesting that Peter would point his people to their new birth as well. He understands their situation. He understands how they're foreigners and outcasts in this land. They don't have Roman citizenship more than likely. Therefore, they don't participate in the benefits. And more than that, because of their faith in Christ, they're all the more vulnerable to being exiled. They don't belong, in other words. And Peter writes to them and says, hey, guess what? You do belong in God's kingdom. You are a member of the eternal kingdom of God. Who cares about the Roman Empire? Well, there is a practical way that we do care about these things. But Peter fixes their eyes to say, you think you don't belong? You do. And you belong where it really matters, in God's house. So Peter isn't just stating facts about who we are. He shows them that the only appropriate starting place for considering who we are is to worship. He's saying that if you are a believer in Christ, you have completely new identity And this identity is characterized by the worship of the living God. Your life now is no longer defined by the problems of this world. It isn't. That is a fact. As much as the problems of this world impact you, they do not define you. 
You are defined by the love of God. You are defined by his wisdom, by his power, by his eternal plan that nobody can thwart. And this all greatly transcends the experience of this world. I hope we have eyes to see that. I hope that means something for us who are in the trenches of the guck of life. Because sometimes it's just guck. Second thing I would say about biblical hope is that it's certain. The nature of biblical hope comforts Christians because it is certain. Now we tend to think about hope in the terms or in the realm of possibility, right? I hope the weather is nice next weekend. I hope I get the job. I hope I find somebody that I can marry and fall in love with and spend the rest of my life with. I hope I get a good job. I hope I get into the college that I want to get into. That's thinking about hope in the realm of possibility. That's not how the Bible talks about hope. And that's not how Peter talks about living hope here in this passage. Peter talks with certainty, you see. He gives them facts. Jesus rose from the dead. Fact. Fact. Jesus is returning and you have an inheritance. You are born again to a living hope. Fact. It's not a possibility. Biblical hope is not maybe. Biblical hope is yes. You are a Christian. You are loved. You are born again. And you do have an inheritance. It's certain. It's not maybe. So the biblical hope that is certain looks a couple of ways here that Peter spells out for us. Here are some certainties, and here are some things that he says about it. Because of your birth in Christ, your living hope includes an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. Fact. There is a lot here. Peter doesn't just rattle off some random adjectives to describe some great thing. He picks these words actually pretty particularly. He's talking to believers who have, to some extent in biblical history, come across their inheritance. And it was perishable, it was defiled, and it was fading. When Israel took the land, they got their inheritance, but it didn't last. It was perishable, it fell because of sinful kings, And it did fade away into nothing. But Peter is saying, not this inheritance in Jesus Christ. It is imperishable. It will never come to an end. It is undefiled. It is without sin or any type of immorality. (laughs) Hallelujah. It's not laced with impure motives or political jargon or whatever it might be. It is undefiled. And it is unfading. It will not wear out like a car 
or a house or your body or like everything else on the planet wears out. It is unfading. Peter also tells us that our living hope means that, his, that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So if you have $1,000 of cash that you want to keep on hand in your home, you don't give it to your six-year-old and say, here, put this in a safe place, right? Some of you are looking at me bewildered. Trust, trust me, you don't want to give $1,000 to a six-year-old and entrust them to put that in a safe place. You hang on to it and you probably invest in a safe that is burglar-proof and fire-proof and anything else-proof, Right? God is the one. In this illustration, in this illustration, we are the six-year-olds, you see. God's like, no, I'll hang on to that for you. Right? Let me hang on to this inheritance. Let me put it in the safety deposit box called heaven. And the code is the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and faith in Christ. That's how you access it. But I will hang on to it. That's good news. That gives me a lot of comfort that I have an inheritance and it's not in my back pocket or it's not on this world where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It's untouchable, you see. So we have a part to play in exercising faith. But even in that, if you notice verse 5, this is interesting. Your part now involves faith and taking hold of this inheritance. But even in that, God doesn't totally leave us to ourselves in that. We're guarded by the power of God, right? God comes alongside of you and says, it's up to you to exercise faith. But don't worry. I'm guarding you with my almighty power. (laughs) Thank you. That's more good news. I need more good news. I need to exercise faith. God is coming alongside, promising, don't you worry. I will guard you with my power. That is awesome. And that is how we have comfort by this biblical hope. Now, there's another level. There's a third thing I want to say about biblical hope. And then um, I'm going to say a few things about faith and how it connects to hope. There's another point I want to make about the certainty of biblical hope here, all right? And I will say this, it is the only hope. I do not want us to get the wrong idea in this passage. Peter isn't writing to tell believers, you have hope too. You see the difference? He's not writing to believers who are in a bleak situation who against the powers of Rome, who seem to have so much hope going for them, he's not writing to say, hey, believers, you have hope as well. That's not what he's saying. I'm going to clarify that in just a little bit. But he's also not saying another thing here. Here's another thing that he is not saying. He's not saying that we have hope that will make it to the end. That's not what he's saying. He's not actually saying, I'm writing to give you hope so that you will make it to the end. He's actually saying, you will make it to the end because you have hope. You see the difference? 
He's not saying, oh, these unbelievers in the empire of Rome, they seem to have so much going for them. They have hope, and you have hope too. No, he's actually saying, you, Christian, are the only one who has hope at all. He's not actually writing to give you hope. He's writing to tell you about the hope that is yours already. He's not telling you, tell, to, to, he's not writing to tell you, hey, you know, in a couple of days there's going to be a treasure box or there might be a treasure box that you come across, take hold of it. He's actually writing to tell you your house is built upon a treasure box. Learn to take hold of it. Learn to cash in on it. He's not writing to give us hope. He's writing to tell us that we already have hope. And you see, he's, what he's actually saying, I think, is that believers in Christ are the only ones who have hope, period. Any real hope, that is. You see, a believer in Christ, I think, is the only one who has hope. Unbelievers have hope in an earthly sense. They have the possibility of finding love, of finding perhaps a good job, or living a decently fulfilling life, or accomplishing some noteworthy things, yes, that hope they have. But Peter knows that every single human being on the face of the planet is created to be in an internal relationship with the living God. This explains why death is so completely unnatural for us, for anyone. But the living hope that the believer of the believer addresses this problem by telling us that eternity with God is a guaranteed part of the salvation that is ours. So what I'm getting at here is that if your hope only includes the possibility of good for this temporary part of life, if that's as far as your hope extends, and it doesn't deal with your sin and the fact that you're eternally separated from the living God, then you're still in your sins. And what Peter is saying, you have no real hope. And that's why I say, Peter is suggesting that Christians who are born again and born into hope are the only ones who actually have hope. Peter isn't telling his people that they have hope even despite their situation being so bleak. You see, he's not coming to them saying, I know your situation is bad, but I'm going to give you some hope. He's actually saying, your situation is bad, yes, but you know how you're going to get through it? You're going to tap in to the hope that is already yours and yours in abundance. And it's based upon this hope that you are called to stand firm, that these believers are called to stand firm. I hope that's, an, hope that's clear for us. So let me turn our attention now to faith. Let's talk a little bit about faith. Right? This is how I see faith and hope going together. I see the two going together. Right? 
Hope is rooted in the certainty of what God is, has accomplished and promised. But it is only useful to the extent that it is believed. Your hope right now is only useful to the extent that your faith is exercised and that hope becomes real to you. Okay, so to think about it like this, I'll use an illustration for you. I know some of you guys like blowing things up, so we'll talk about dynamite. Imagine you have a stick of dynamite, right? So hope would be like the stick of dynamite, and the detonator would be like faith. Faith is the detonator. Hope is the stick of dynamite. You can't just place a stick of dynamite by a stump and expect to blast it out of the ground. You have to set it off. And for that, you need a detonator, right? The living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus is detonated and therefore becomes useful to us through faith. The dynamite is hope. Our faith is the detonator. Unless that dynamite goes off, it's good for nothing. And unless our hope goes off, it's not useful to us. How, do, how does our living hope become useful to us right now? It has to be set off by our faith. Our faith is what makes the hope living and real and applicable to us and useful to us in this world. Right? And this is why faith is considered so important in the Christian world. Faith. If the kingdom of heaven were Fort Knox, the gold that we would store inside of it would be the Christian faith. When Satan seeks to destroy you, do you know what the bullseye of his target is for you? Your faith. He wants to rip apart your faith. Faith, because faith is what makes hope applicable. Faith is what makes hope useful to you so that you will see Jesus and that you will see this world as God sees it, so that you will understand his love and you will understand his power. We need faith to do that, and that's why Satan targets our faith. True biblical faith is the ability to see the unseen and live in the reality of our unseen hope. God doesn't promise his people that they will be relieved of the grief of trials. That's an interesting point here. Nowhere in this passage does God actually say, I'm going to relieve you of all the junk of the world and trials that you might encounter. In fact, the reality is, What Peter seems to be suggesting is that your faith in Christ might actually increase the amount of trial that you come across. So Peter's agenda here isn't to do a 694 loop around the heart of trial. He's taking us straight up the gut. And he's giving us faith and hope so that we can endure trial. God's plan isn't to save us from trial. His plan is to save us through trial. I wish sometimes it were a different way. 
but that's the way it is, and he has wisdom in doing it that way. So how can faith and hope work together to endure trials? Let me give you three ways that living hope looks for us now when it is activated by faith. How does faith and hope work together when it's activated? Okay, here's three things. Number one, imagine there are two prisoners of war who are locked up and treated harshly. Perhaps they don't see the light of day, and they have no idea when they're going to get out. It could be years. And now imagine only one of them knows that they are going to get out and that they will be reunited with their family. Which one is going to endure if one of them was going to endure? It is going to be the latter, isn't it? It's going to be the one who knows that they have hope. Now, they have to believe in that hope. They're not out yet, you see. So their hope is what's going to come, but their faith now makes what's going to come real for them in the moment, and that causes them to endure. Faith and hope work together. Faith is the ability to see the unseen hope and make it real for you right now. Right? So number two, here's how faith and hope work together. Faith activates living hope and convinces us that the worst things that can happen to us are never meaningless. So when faith and hope work together, we know that trials that we face are never meaningless. And that's a comfort in and of itself. Faith and hope work together and it removes the possibility that your trial and your grief is random or arbitrary, right? Faith and hope work together so that we can see that our best life is yet to come. So our best life is yet to come and that in the meantime, we see the trials that are introduced to us by necessity. It says in verse 6, every trial that is brought into your life is done so by necessity from the wisdom of a loving father. Isn't that amazing? So faith, working with hope, gives us the conviction that nothing that we encounter is meaningless. And then number three, this takes number two a step farther, right? Faith activates living hope by helping us to see that the worst things are actually working in our favor. The worst trials that we could possibly encounter are not just not meaningless. He actually gives us insight into what the purpose of these trials are, right? And what he says is that the purpose of our trials is to test the genuineness of our faith, and as faith is genuine, it leads us to joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So why do we encounter trials? So that it tests the genuineness of our faith. Why do we need genuine faith? 
Because genuine faith embraces Jesus all the more for who he is. It allows us to love him and see him in all of his glory, which leads to joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, it's hard a little bit to deal with that phrase. When Peter says, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, yes, you love him. Okay, yes. Though you do not see him now, yes, I relate. You believe in him. Uh Uh-huh, I do. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, Peter, you kind of lost me there. I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this one, but how many of you would characterize yourself or describe your week or describe where you're at right now by saying, well, uh, joy inexpressible filled with glory. How are you doing today? Joy inexpressible filled with glory. If you are that type of a person, you might be on the annoying side. You're happy all the time. I I didn't say that I was annoyed by you, but others might be. And if you are that happy personality type, praise the Lord. I'm not. (laughs) I was asking Jesse this morning, how you doing? You said, oh, what did you say? (laughs) Pretty decent, pretty decent. You You repeated it twice, pretty decent. He didn't say joy inexpressible, filled with glory. This isn't a slight on you, Jesse. I'm just saying, most of us don't feel joy inexpressible, filled with glory all the time. Am I wrong about this? But most of you want that. If you are in Christ, you have tasted it and you want it. But the reality is the struggles and the trials of life have you in a different direction. We deal with depression. We deal with sadness. We deal with anger. I can't control I'm addicted. I look at things that I shouldn't look at. I say things I shouldn't say. I'm discouraged. My spouse is to this. My husband doesn't understand anything. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is, most of us are consumed, perhaps, most of the time, with the things that weigh us down, that stress us out, that worry us about the future, and we can't necessarily say that I have joy inexpressible filled with glory. So how do we make sense of that? We've tasted it, yes. I want that, yes. How many of you, if you could do something, snap your finger, and make it so that you were joy inexpressible, filled with glory all the time, you would do that. You would do that, right? And probably most of us have realized that we're not going to get to that point until Jesus is revealed. But yet Peter is saying, you are Filled with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. How does this happen? And I think it happens by faith. And maybe it doesn't happen constantly, but it at least happens in little increments. And we get little foretastes of it. We have tasted it. We try to taste it more. And we will taste it in fullness and completeness. And here's how I think that faith helps us. 
working with living hope. And this is the reason why our hope is living. And it's because every design of death actually isn't going to touch you. Trials, you see, has an important way of connecting us to our living hope. Faith connects us to the resurrection of Jesus in a very important way through trials. For Jesus, the resurrection means that the sting of death does not have the final say over him, but his life has the final say over death. And when we encounter trials, I think, well, let me hold off that thought and flesh this out a little bit more. Now, for believers in Christ who are born again, they endure trials by faith, knowing that God's purposes of life will always prevail instead of the shadow of death, which often seems so strong. So when we think about trials and when we think about hardships and when we think about the ways that they discourage us, faith actually helps us to connect to the resurrection of Jesus. And just as death did not have the final say over Jesus, because you have living hope, death and all of the trials will not actually have the final say over you, but you will experience God's life-giving, Jesus-transforming experiences through those trials. Meaning every trial is kind of an outworking of death and our rebellion against God. But the reality is, if you are a Christian, your trials are not working ultimately against you. They are ultimately working for you to make you more like Jesus. It appeared on the cross that Jesus was defeated, but actually his death was a great victory to overcome the grave. And that is also true for you, that when you experience trials and all the darkness that comes with it, the reality is it is working for you. God will not ultimately let that crush you because you are born again to a living hope. That trial is actually working in your favor so that you will see the mighty power of Jesus to overcome the grave. So trials causes our faith to be more genuine. And when faith is more genuine, living hope becomes more real. And when living hope becomes more real to us, the more we become convinced that God is awesome and that he has a plan of salvation for us. And that is when we become joy inexpressible, filled with glory. Let me close with this, biblical hope and how it confronts us. So as I mentioned before, we see how hope confronts us as well. How does it confront us? I think hope confronts us by defining what we are hoping for. If we kept it general, 10 out of 10 people would like the prospect of having an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Right? If we did a survey and we went throughout the town and said, would you like, an it- if this were possible, would you like an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? How many people would object to that? 
Yeah, I like that. That is good. However, Peter defines that our hope really includes, ultimately, rejoicing in Jesus. That our salvation, that our inheritance cannot be disconnected from rejoicing in Jesus. And in fact, he will use trials of various kinds that we are grieved by so that we will rejoice in Jesus all the more. Now, when I think about this, this has a weeding out factor, right? Sometimes we think, well, I'll just take the inheritance, hold the trials, please. And it begs the question, if you had an inheritance that was imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that was kept in heaven for you, if all of that was true, if you had the option of taking that, Minus the Jesus, would you be okay with that? This is, I think, one of the ways that it confronts. Now I think about how extremely uneasy persecution or trials or opposition is to me and how it makes me feel. In some ways, this response, you have an eternal inheritance, is somewhat unsatisfying. I'm just being very honest with you all. Jesus dealt with me on this one a couple weeks ago, actually. And he confronted a fear of the future and a fear of man in me. You know where Jesus says, do not fear man who can kill the body, but fear man or fear God who has the ability to kill both body and soul in hell? That was supposed to rid me of my fear of man. But here's the reality. That wasn't enough. Because what I'm saying is, what I'm realizing about myself is, so you're still saying that somebody can hurt me. And quite frankly, I want the inheritance that I'm going to get, and I want the promise, and I want my hope to save me and guard me from even that happening. You see, if man hurts me, and if this world is what I'm truly living for, then killing the body is already too much harm for me to stomach. I hope you guys see what I'm saying here. The reality is, what I really want sometimes is I want a promise and a hope that is going to Come to me and say, everything precious to you is going to be guarded and it's not going to be touched. And I have a certain quality and a certain condition for what that looks like. It means what I want is this life to be as secure as my eternal life. Because quite frankly, the possibility of me getting hurt or attacked or my children or my spouse, or everything that is near and dear and precious to me, scares me. And when this hope comes to me, it confronts the ways that I am too tied to this world. If you find this hope somewhat unsatisfying, you know what it's telling, about, telling you about you? 
It's saying you're too connected to this world. And this is really difficult to embrace. And I think Peter has, and the Bible and God has a ton of compassion for us who really don't want to be harmed. God takes no delight in that. That is true. But if I'm being perfectly honest, there is a part of me that says, you're not going to touch this. And guess what? This hope doesn't actually protect this. And as long as it doesn't protect this, I'm left wanting more. So, what do we do? I think it's pretty simple. And this is what I commend to you. And this is, by the way, great discussion for a community group. Search your heart, number one. Where are you at? Do you have a place in your life that just says, okay, God, you can come this close, but you can't touch this? Right? Be honest, confess, and repent. Be honest with where you're at. Yeah, you know, this is a way or two that I'm just too tied to this world. Be honest about that. I encourage you to. And then last, fight with the truth. (laughs) Know the grace of God. He forgives sinners. He works for you. God, in in his word, has revealed and dispensed all kinds of truth to help you deal with this fear, to help you relinquish control over your life, right? So I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time, and I pray that whatever was of you would stick, and I pray that whatever was not of you would fall away. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would give us faith so that our living hope would be active for us now and that it would encourage our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.